0: You're listening to In Conversation from the Educational Freedom Institute.
1: Platforms. Oh, Wish we had should. more more choice um, we than, than we have currently.
0: Maybe.
1: Yeah. Uh, so, want to say hi to everybody. It's been a while since we've had an Educational Freedom Institute podcast. There's a lot going on in the world of education reform and in the world. Uh, more generally, I'm Corey DeAngelis, co-hosting this podcast uh, with Matthew Nielsen, who is the co-founder of the Educational Freedom Institute and the current president of the Board of the Educational Freedom Institute. We have a great uh, special guest with us today, uh, Ryan Petty. He is the founder of Walk Up for Schools, which is an advocacy group for um, uh, preventative measures for safer uh, schools, and he, he is also... Um, Uh, an an advocate for school safety at the national level and then also in parkland in florida uh
0: so thanks thanks for coming out here with us uh ryan Uh, it's it's good to talk to you well it's great to uh be on podcast finally i've uh been a long time viewer first time participant (laughs) but uh good to good to be on with you Corey and matthew today
1: yeah. So I, I gave a little, a quick little introduction, but could you give us a, a more in-depth introduction? What got you interested in, in school safety reform? And uh, tell us a little bit about your organization walk up for schools and then also stand with Parkland, which you're also a, a part of as well.
0: Yeah. So uh, this is the hard part. Uh, so how did I get involved in all of this? Well, um, unfortunately, um, I, I got involved in school safety advocacy, not, not by choice. Um, but because I wasn't involved more as a parent, I think before in understanding what was going on in, in our schools, my, uh, my daughter, Elena was 14 and was one of the victims that was killed in the Parkland, uh, Marjory Stoneman Douglas, sh- uh, shooting and, um, worst day of my life. Um, and it's hard to think about it. It's hard to talk about it. Um, we're now almost three years out and, uh, it, it, uh. Thinking back on the events of that day, um, uh, I still struggle. I still struggle for the words. Um, but, but on a more positive note, I guess my my um, advocacy has really centered around what I learned uh, about why that tragedy occurred, what happened in the events preceding that, and what could have been done to prevent it. And so um, I was asked by uh, our former governor, Rick Scott, or I was appointed. I wasn't asked. I, I mean, he asked me first, but then he appointed me to the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas Public Safety Commission. We were charged with investigating the tragedy. Um, and it was, um, uh, you know, a group of uh, fathers uh, uh, of victims, uh, law enforcement, educators, mental health professionals, and others, really good people across the state of Florida that got together, uh, we had all the, uh, authority and power from the state legislature that we needed. We could subpoena witnesses. Uh, it was a, a, a complete, uh, law enforcement backed legislature and governor backed group. And, um, and, uh, we brought folks in and we got to the bottom of, of what happened and why it happened more importantly. And from that, um, um, you know, from learning about it, that's really what informed my advocacy. Um, what I what I learned was the initial reaction to the tragedy and the calls for uh, things like restricting Second Amendment freedoms, uh, gun gun rights, that that whole media narrative that came out of Parkland uh, was wrong, it was wrong-headed, It was wrong thinking. It would not have prevented the tragedy that day uh, and it would not prevent most of these school tragedies, unfortunately. And so I shifted into understanding uh, uh, what could we do to prevent these things from happening in the first place? And really what I learned was um, the Secret Service does a pretty good job of preventing attacks on our elected officials, notwithstanding you know the events of this past week and some of the uh, concerns about what happened at the Capitol and, and the effectiveness of law enforcement there. But they've done a very good job of protecting the president. And what I learned from them is that they've created – what's called uh, a behavioral threat assessment model. And they actually go out. So if you make a threat against the president, you're gonna get a visit. You're gonna get a visit from some secret service agents. And rather than going there to arrest you, they're, they're gonna talk to you. They're gonna try to figure out what's going on in your life. Why did you make the threat? What is happening in your life that precipitated um, the, the, you making a threat? And they're going to get to the bottom of that. And then they're going to bring resources in to try to figure out how to help you. And a lot of times, you know, it's there's some triggering event. Uh, it's, it's more than you had a bad day, but maybe you had a bad year. And maybe things are just not going the way you think they should in life. And you get wrapped up in the politics and you decide to make a threat against the president. Well, they're going to come in and help unwind that. And they view that preventative work that they do, that interviewing that they do of those that make threats that understanding what's going on in their life and fixing the problems that precipitated the threat. They, they view that as every bit important as all the fancy stuff that we see and don't see that they do to protect the white house and, and and the president, they, they think it's as valuable as the limo. I think, what's that called the beast that they have, right. (laughs) Um, And all the armaments and other things that, that, uh, um, And and technology that they have to protect the president, they view this preventative work as just as important. And so in short, what I learned was most of these tragedies, in fact, almost all of them, there were warning signs that were transmitted by these attackers and these attackers let somebody else know. And that information was not passed on uh, to those that could have done something about it. What was so Difficult about to learn about our tragedy in Parkland was that a lot of those things did happen. There were warning signs; they were transmitted uh, to the FBI, to the school district, to law enforcement, and they didn't act, or what they did in acting was insufficient to stop it. And so um, that that sort of adds salt to the wounds as a father uh, whose whose daughter was just there to sitting in English class in the morning and just like any other day. And uh so whatever I can do to stop it or prevent it, that's what I'm gonna focus on. So and 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 this is what gets us into
1: the walk up foundation, mm-hmm. right? And and what are some specifics of what this looks like on the ground? Is it only for uh st- things that are being pushed for for public schools? Is it only in Florida? Is this a nationwide thing? Can it be used for private schools? Um What's, what's the main idea of the push going forward?
0: Yeah, this model. So what we've, what we, um, so the organization sort of what we started as and what we're doing today has morphed a little bit. We spend most of our time sort of advocating um, at the state and national level for school districts and communities to adopt this be- behavioral threat assessment model. Um, it's not difficult to do Um, In fact, in the state of Florida, our governor and legislature have mandated it. So every state agency is trained on behavioral threat assessment, not just our schools. In Florida, we have an Office of Safe Schools. It's responsible for driving this within our districts. Every district has a school safety director um, that's responsible for for implementing behavioral threat assessment, putting the training in place, and making sure that it's done with some level of fidelity. Now, it's like anything else, there's a lot of room for error in that, right? Florida's a big state, 67 school districts, um, millions of students, lots of chances for things to break and go wrong. And so it's never gonna be 100% perfect. But what, what we're trying to do at the Walk-Up Foundation is make sure that there's, we're trying to drive awareness of behavioral threat assessment as an option, as a, as a tool, um, we're trying to make sure that folks are not creating information silos and that information is is freely shared. And we're trying to make sure that, that whether you're a public school or private school, uh, even a business, uh, even, you know, sh- malls and shopping centers can use behavioral threat assessment models to better understand, working with local law enforcement to better understand threats that might be, um, uh, that they might be uh, subject to. And so... It works everywhere. It works very well, and we're just trying to drive advocacy there. And so I- uh, oh, go ahead, Matthew.
2: Yeah. So the main idea, Ryan, is—and correct me if I'm wrong—but this is how I'm understanding it. And I jumped on your website a, a while ago to to hope to try to get my mind wrapped around uh, behavioral threat, behavioral threat assessment, and and what it is that you're advocating for. Um, but but the general idea is that if you catch these people early uh, by using those techniques and those methods that have been, that like you mentioned secret service, you mentioned uh, in Virginia, they've Mm -hmm. been using this model. Uh, If you catch those early, then things like we see around the country, things like you experienced firsthand, uh, we can catch those and, and prevent them from happening. It's a preventative measure versus a responsive measure a hundred percent right yeah that's exactly right
0: matthew and and the the idea is that if when you go back and study these school attacks in particular but most public space attacks when you when you study them almost without exception you find that the attackers transmitted their intentions before the attack they told somebody Mm -hmm. sometimes a friend but usually a trusted adult a teacher or 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 a parent or somebody so somebody new right Mm -hmm. and when you when you hear that that there's a there's a child that's in distress that's thinking about you know attacking their school uh and their fellow classmates uh, a lot of folks didn't know what to do with that and so the, the the first thing is just you know you gotta share information. It's okay to tell, it's okay to share that information with a trusted, uh, responsible adult. And then we hope what adults will do is inform uh, the school that there's something going on. But the behavioral threat assessment model in particular is a multidisciplinary approach. So who sits on a behavioral threat assessment team? It's not just law enforcement, although they should be part of it, it's teachers. It it's uh it, it maybe the v uh, the assistant principal responsible for discipline. It could be uh, it and should be uh, counselors that are at the school. Any mental health counselors in particular that are there, and the idea is that they all bring some different element of knowledge uh, about the student or about what's going on in their life or how to how to interpret the threats as an example once a threat's made. And so this multidisciplinary team can actually intervene before to your point before something bad happens and and if you catch it early enough it can be dealt with through counseling probably Mm -hmm. right if you catch it you know in the planning phases and it's likely a law enforcement uh you know uh, juvenile justice system is going to have to become involved and figure out what's going on and in some cases these kids are adults right in the case of the parkland Mm -hmm. killer he was uh he's an adult so the 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 criminal justice system is going to get involved. But the idea is the earlier you can catch that and the more well-rounded the team is, the better chance you have in understanding what's actually happened. Is this a real threat? Is is there real intent there and is there a means to carry out the threat? Those are the really Mm -hmm. important elements that the behavioral threat assessment team uses to determine what action to take. So we had
1: uh, Andy Polak, uh, another parent in Parkland, on the podcast maybe about a month ago, and we Matthew and I have both read his book uh, co-authored with our um, uh, colleague uh, Max Eden from the Manhattan Institute. And just reading through that book, it seemed like there was failures every step of the way that led to the tragedy, even though uh, people, you know, there were there was information circulating that. Um, um the that that this incident could happen and then no one stopped it how does how does this this new preventative measure um improve upon that what are the you know specifics and um it seems like there's just more information and people can actually see like this you know that, that something might happen instead of a bunch of like haphazard uh, ways of getting information that happened in Parkland. I, I, am I getting that right? Or
0: you, you are. There were two two major uh, themes, I think, in in Andy's and Max's book. One is that um, in, information. Look, there was a lot of information that was known. This kid was violent from kindergarten, right? Mm-hmm. We learned that as um, when we looked back at his academic. Um, um, career, if you want to call it that, in school. I mean, I think his first attack was kindergarten. He attacked another student. So he had behavioral problems that posed a threat to other students his entire, his entire career. And that comes out in the book also. So people were aware, right, that, that, that he posed a threat to other students. Um, so that, that's one theme. I think the second, the second theme was information just didn't get shared, and what information then got shared, the third theme is it wasn't acted on. And so everyone knew it was a threat. Um, nobody was sharing information that could have done anything to prevent the threat. And any information that was, in fact, shared. So, for example, um, when when um, a, a parent contacted the the FBI uh, and when a YouTube channel host had contacted the fbi and said hey this this kid said i'm going to become the next school shooter and this was in the comments on you on one of the youtube videos he reported that to the fbi the fbi sort of handed it over to you know they called the local police but they didn't follow up on it they didn't make sure that 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 the the local sheriff's department took action on that and then when it came to, and this is why the behavioral threat assessment, the multidisciplinary team is so important. So law enforcement did go out to, to the killer's home over like 40 times. I mean, I think Max documented like 40 mm-hmm. times in the book. And I think we heard similar testimony at the commission the the issue was that when they got there, they never, they didn't believe, or they claim they didn't believe that there was any, that he'd done anything that rose to the level that would require them to arrest him or detain him or do anything like that. So mom made a lot of excuses. He, you know, he'd attack mom or he'd destroy property at home. Um, there were, there were accusations that he'd killed the neighbors uh, and animals like chickens and dogs and things like that, which by the way, Secret Service knows is a precursor, but the law enforcement deputies that went there didn't understand that those were precursor behaviors. Had mm-hmm. they brought that information back to behavioral threat assessment team and had a had a counselor with mental health training, like a, psychi- a you know psychologist or some training in that, they would have said, "Oh, wait a minute, that's precursor, behavior, right?" That, and and you know he was uh, self harming, which is also precursor behavior. So those are things that law enforcement didn't know, and and had they brought it back to this multidisciplinary team, they could have found out that that this kid posed a real threat. And I would like to believe they would have acted differently. And had they done that, we'd have 17 individuals uh, still with us.
2: Hey, uh, real sorry, Corey, do you have something? I always have something, but go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) So Ryan, that to me seems like every police department in the country, in the world should know. Like that—that's like an easy thing, right? It's a sentence. And harming animals can be a precursor to, you know, I mean, yeah. to to violence, um, right? So, are you working, or is Walk Up working at all with police departments? To because that seems like a, you know, two-slide PowerPoint presentation. <laughs> like you just email out, like, "Hey, guys, uh, police officers." In, you know, where, wherever all around the country, just know that if you're called out to see someone and you have uh, solid evidence that this kid has been killing his neighbors' animals, there may be a chance that he's going to do something more, something worse. Right. So I, I'm just curious, what? Yeah, what?
0: It's a great point, and what what we'd like to have happen. So yes, we are working with law enforcement. I've been uh, last year. I spent. Um, several months, uh, on tour. It's kind of sounds funny on tour with the secret service. <laughs> so we, <laughs> we went to, um, we went around the country teaching law enforcement and educators and public policy, uh, folks, um, in you know, Chicago, DC, Los Angeles, and then in Miami we had, um, we sold out Los Angeles, which is kind of cool to say, We <laughs> sort of sold out a venue. <laughs> we had like, um, Um, you know, a couple thousand people in Los Angeles. But the point, the point is um, when what we want law enforcement to do in that situation is when they see that behavior, they have to say, Hey, wait a minute, I need a complete picture of what's going on Mm -hmm. in the student's life. So, so yes, that's precursor behavior. Doesn't necessarily mean they're the next school attacker, but what they could do is go to the school and, and, and provide that information to a threat assessment team that looks at that and says, oh, wait a minute, you know what? He attacked a student last week with a knife and he's on suspension. So now he's, now he's escalated. So what you do is you see what the Secret Service calls is like a, a pattern or a constellation of disturbing behaviors that, that, that is a pathway indicator of, of, of potential violence. And then you can act on those things. But the point is to get that complete picture. And then maybe, yep. this, maybe a teacher volunteers that, yeah, you know, his head was down in his desk the other day and I asked him what was going on. And he said, I just don't want to live anymore or whatever, right? You, you comp- you, the idea is to paint a complete picture of the student to know whether or not, um, you know, where, where, where their path is headed. Now, again, this is not, I, I should point out, I won't say again, but I should point out, this is not just for school attackers. This, mm-hmm. this methodology can be used for kids in distress. At, at, you know, there may, there may be kids that just are having a bad home life, or they may be being bullied at school, or um, they may just be depressed over a breakup with a girlfriend or boyfriend or whatever. This kind of model, it doesn't mean you're going to be a school attacker, you get painted with that, or, you, or you, you're entered into the juvenile justice system. It just means, these are kids in distress, let's learn a little bit more about them, let's figure out what resources can be brought to, to, to resolve the problem. And that's that's really what threat assessment's about. Mm-hmm. Where it gets political, if we wanna get into that, is that this, um, when, whenever you use the word like threat assessment or whatever, it sounds very law enforcement related, I, I try to say behavioral threat assessment, not mm-hmm. just threat assessment. And, and you get groups um, on the left in particular that look at this and they say, well, if you implement this kind of thing, it, it, law enforcement, then they're, they're law enforcement just wants to arrest kids. They just, they, mm-hmm. that's what they do. They know how to put handcuffs on kids. They want to get them in the juvenile justice system and they, and, and they want to reach some quota or whatever. So you hear, you hear things like school to prison pipeline talked about, right. And, but, you know, my message for that is first of all, I don't know any law enforcement officers that like like or want to arrest kids or get up in the morning excited to get to their you know school security role and and can't wait to arrest a child. That's that just come on, it doesn't happen. Number two, um, this threat assessment model. Again, the earlier you can intervene, the less likely there has to be a law enforcement intervention. The goal is not to put a kid in the juvenile justice system. The goal is not to put a kid into, um, uh, you know, to arrest a kid. That's not the goal here. The goal is to get them the resources they need. So the earlier we do that, the better outcomes we have, the less likelihood they end up in the criminal justice system. But I will say this, and I think it's important. There are kids that are violent and there are kids that have intentions to harm other students in the, in, in those schools. And for every parent, here's the other message coming out of Max's and, and, and Andy's book. They're in your kid's school. You don't know it, but they're there. And do you know what policies are in place at your child's school? Do you know are they trained? Do they understand what the warning signs are and what to look for? And will they act and take appropriate action to make sure your child is safe? The answer I thought on February 13th was, yeah, my school's pretty good. It's an A-rated school. That's why we moved there. We bought into that neighborhood. Good zip code, good schools. My kids are, my kids will be safe. Nothing could have been further from the truth. And when you look at where most of these attacks happen, they happen in, you know, sort of suburban schools in many cases where parents all thought their kids were safe and the school was, was a good school. So. Mm-hmm. so you, good
1: you preempted my question. You read my mind. I was going to ask what's the biggest pushback you get on these types of preemptive uh, proposals. One thing that I could think of is um, uh, people who don't support these policies could say, uh, you know, this is going to lead to discrimination for, for certain students and um, you know, that, that could be a problem is their argument. What, what, do you have a response to that? Is it pretty much what you already summed up or?
0: Well, I there, you know, we're, we're in sort of a, um, it's an interesting time we're in um, what, what I can say when you, when you look at the facts um, and you, and you just just take the Parkland tragedy, for instance, you, and, and you look at the facts of what happened and you look, what steps were missed that could have been done differently to prevent that tragedy, I think it's worth, you know, I, I know it's worth the effort. Um, the biggest complaint that we hear is that that these kinds of, you know, considering a child a threat is discriminatory. It will, it will, um, um, it will be, you know, unequally in, uh, imposed on students of color in particular. That's really. Where uh, where you hear a lot of the uh, the pushback. Um, and then the second thing that you hear um, is that, um, you know, well, teachers are teachers. they should just be teaching. They shouldn't have to worry about all this stuff. Well, I agree with that to a point, but the reality is the teachers were targets that day too, and three of the staff in Parkland lost their lives because, The, the attacker didn't care whether they were students. The attacker wanted to kill as many people on that campus as possible. So I understand um, that you'd like your classroom to be this serene place of peace where nothing bad ever happens. But the reality for a lot of our teachers is they're uh, public, public school teachers in particular, they're dealing with violent kids on a daily basis, and whether they they come to school with the intent to kill other students, they certainly inc- are coming to school with the intent to disrupt class. They're coming to school with the intent to to bully other students. They're they're coming to the school um, with the intent to hurt hurt their teachers. Um, so, behavioral threat assessment is a tool that school districts can use with other partners in the community to protect teachers and students and their staff at these at these schools. So. Um. yeah, I know what your primary mission is. I get it, but we live in the real world and sometimes bad things happen. So if we know a way to prevent them, let's do that.
1: Yeah. And I think this is another good argument for a system of school choice in unison with these types of safety measures so that it's possible that, that there could be some unintended consequences of a school safety measure, but one way to hold the system accountable from the bottom up as well if there is any of those and if there are any unintended consequences is to allow students to vote with their feet to other institutions if there is some type of discriminatory um behavior going on in one particular school perhaps then the families should be able to vote with their feet to escape that um uh, what they feel to be discriminatory practice so i think that's another way to solve this um argument from coming coming against, uh, these types of preemptive measures. I think if we do both at the same time, that's a win-win situation. And I, I,
2: Florida, Florida I, has I, a lot I, of. I,
0: I, no, I agree. And I think, you know, what, what, um, yeah, parents need options and students need options. You need to find an educational environment that works for your student. I, I think, um, you know, with the exception of, of that day, I think Marjorie Stoneman Douglas was a pretty decent school. Um, I, I think, um, you know, we, there were good teachers there, um, most of the kids were there to learn. Um, and, and so I think overall it was a pretty, a pretty good environment, but that was for, for notwithstanding the tragedy for my kids, that was a judgment my wife and I make, but I don't think it's an ideal situation for every student. And to your point, having, uh, having choice is, is, uh, is, is definitely important.
2: Well, and it, so on that note real quick, just to, it, you know, put it right to him, like, let's just talk about what that would have done for the, the, um, the shooter. I mean, it, if there weren't such rigid, and Max and Andy talk about this in their book, um, and it doesn't necessarily completely solve the issue per se, uh, you know, legislation creating school choice. That doesn't necessarily fix it right? Even if that were in place 100% where it it was really policies, it was district policy that pushed him from a program where he was actually doing fairly well, it sounded like he was was in a place where his behavior was managed more tightly, his attendance was tracked more closely, so on and so forth. Uh, His mental state was tracked more closely. Um, It was... If I recall correctly, you can correct me if I'm wrong here. But my recollection is that he was pushed from that environment where he was getting a little more attention and and specific to his needs. Right. His mental needs. Um, He was pushed from there back into uh, uh, school. Now, he wanted to go, but they were more than happy to push him back, too if I remember correctly. So if if there was a system set up that was truly, you know, freedom for the student and for families, it might have been a little easier for them to say, you know what? No, it's not the right move for you now to go back to, to MSD. It's really probably better for you to move into an intermediate program. You've been doing great here. And we we've seen that, so we're going to move you into a potentially less restrictive environment that uh, than the one that you're in now. But we're not pushing you back into the general population of the district. You know, so I'm I'm just wondering if there was a more expansive uh, program of school choice or more more options is what I'm really saying. If that would have helped, if that would have met more of his needs, but. Not put so many people, uh, of course, at risk as it turned out. Yeah, I I think so. And and you you
0: mentioned uh, you, you you there was a magical term you just used a moment ago, least restrictive environment. So now mm-hmm. we're getting into policy, right? So again, this is all stuff I've learned post tragedy, but the The and I want to be careful how I say this because this is um, this is fraught with landmines, and there's lots of parents on different different sides of this issue. But essentially what we've done, and you see Max arguing this quite quite eloquently, and I won't be able to do it justice. Um, but the 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 way I see it is we've deci- we there are there are good reasons to have the regulations and laws that we have today governing public schools around, you know, free access to a public education, right? And in the least restrictive environment, there were good intentions behind that. What's happened, um, which is often the case with legislation at all levels, but particularly the federal level, because it's so far removed from being on the ground, is that we've com- we're conflating the idea of taking a child that we would have said was disabled or had a learning disability of some sort. And this is where I want to be very careful about how I say this. Is that my intention is not to infe- offend any parents here. My, my intention is to say the goal of that legislation was to create, was to make sure school districts, was to try to hold them accountable to make sure that every child had an opportunity to get an environment that where they could learn and grow. That was try to force it into the public schools, which when you look at the way public schools are structured, you look at the infrastructure. I mean, it's a factory model, right? It's it's the Ford model <laughs> T factory line. And 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 it works if every car is identical if every student is as identical as every other student then it works well that public model seems to work well but so many kids fall outside of that so mm-hmm. so the legislation was put in place to try to try to force schools to accommodate students with different ways of learning and different disabilities and whatever that's that's great they try to accommodate it as best they can but it costs more to do that and and that's going to be important I'll come back to that but we also take students that have behavioral issues that aren't there to learn. And we put them, we lump them in that same category. And so the system is designed to try to push them back into the least restrictive environment because it's actually the least cost environment for the school district. Right. right. So the cheapest way to educate the kid is to put them back in the factory line and just, right. And deal with, Deal with it that way, as opposed to putting them in an environment which may be more restrictive. And in the case of the students that have behavioral challenges, should be more restrictive. Mm -hmm. They should not be, you know, free-brown the halls. They should not be maybe free to wear a backpack. They should not be free. There there are restrictions on on their behavior. What, What they found in the case of the killer in Parkland is he actually was, to your point, was... I'll go as far as saying thriving in that environment. He's doing very well. But we've also put a stigma on that, right? So we've said, well, if you're not in the school where your zip code is, then there's something wrong, right? And you're you're not in the you're you're you should be moved back to your public school as quickly as possible. School districts are incentivized financially to do that. Um, and I think they're, 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 also parents want that to happen. So when you say he wanted to move back to the, to, to, to Marjory Stoneman Douglas high school, he did, uh, his mom wanted him to move back. Um, his mom thought he was, uh, ready for that. And whether she mistook his, him thriving in this other environment, uh, for he's ready to go back or not, we'll never know. But,
2: well, um, and, it, and it's
0: like we make as a policy level, we conflate, the disability and behavioral problems and we try to try to treat them and lump them in the same way we got to stop doing that as a society Uh, just real quick matthew i think the way that max eden puts it is that the
1: disparate impact kind of policies when they Mm. when you apply them to behavioral outcomes it turns out that they're incentivizing schools to discipline students who misbehave at the same rate as the students who behave well which just doesn't make any sense at all. And I think that's one of the qu- quotes out of the book as well, um, and, and I think it's 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 a result, an unintended result of top-down policies like this to um, incentivize schools to have just, you know just work towards this one metric instead of what the metric is actually trying to capture, which is safety. Um, but well, and then
0: and then we conflate it even further. And Max, I know, has, has argued we conflate it with things like school to prison pipeline, which, which is a term that impacts students of color, or is meant to me- meant to describe a situation where students of color are are more negatively impacted by by school discipline that leads to 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 them uh, being uh, put into the juvenile justice system at a higher rate than than other students, but. What we, what we don't do is look at the behavior, right? We should, we should define what behaviors are ac- acceptable in the classroom and on campus and which aren't. And regardless of your skin color, regardless of your zip code, regardless of your parents' uh, income levels, we should treat those behaviors uh, in a similar fashion and deal with them my point in, in talking about behavioral threat assessment earlier is that there's a way to do that. That doesn't necessarily mean we're putting kids in jail. That's not the goal. It's mm-hmm. not the goal anyone has, including law enforcement. And uh, until we can have an intellectually honest discussion about all of those things, which unfortunately I don't, I don't see us. Uh, I don't see us having, um, um, then, then I don't see the public schools changing, um, uh, um, there, there are certain things legislatures to do. There are certain things that uh, departments of education can do. We can certainly talk about those to try to enforce that. Um, but right now, so much of the administration of, of our nation's public schools has bought into this whole notion um, that, that they have to treat behavior as a disability and deal with it the same way they do, and then and then try to make sure that they're disciplining students based on race at the same levels that that quite frankly, we're creating an environments in our schools where kids are unsafe, teachers are unsafe and um, I, you know, uh, administrators don't like to talk about it. Well, and, and
1: I, I actually agree that there is there is the possibility of discrimination to occur. I don't know how widespread it is, but it could be really widespread in one particular school, but not a problem in another school. But what's interesting is a lot of the people who a lot of the people who say that your type the policies that you're proposing, Ryan, would lead to discrimination. Uh, I'm sure your response, my response, would be uh, yes, that's a possibility. But that's a, a great argument for school choice, uh, even within the public school system. Without um, the policy that that you're proposing, there's still um, the the potential for discrimination in the status quo system. And if that's the case, that's a very strong argument to allow students to sort from and and to allow those pressures from the bottom up to incentivize all schools to do a good job. Um, But then the the people who argue against you uh, in particular tend to not support uh, school choice policies. So um, I think uh, it's okay to say, you know what, you're right. Uh, There's a possibility for this. But we got to support school choice too to allow for additional accountability
0: yeah, and that's why i say it's hard to have an intellectually honest conversation with the with the folks that uh, oppose keeping schools safe i think or 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 those that um, I, don't, I don't even you know teachers unions and others and other sort of administrative uh, levels in our in our school districts hard to have that conversation cuz um they don't like choice and they don't want competition. And, and I do think that as a parent, I should have the right to find the environment where my child um, has the best opportunity to be successful. That, that could be in a public school. It could very well be in a public school, but it might be at a private school down the road, or it might be at a charter school. Or it might be at uh, a pod. It could be, it could be in lots of different environments. And, and, uh, and I think, Parents need to, need to be aware of those uh, options and, and also have uh, the choice to, to take their, their students there.
1: Well, and, there's, and if we're talking logical inconsistencies, there's only opposition opposition to choice when it comes to K through 12 education. When it comes to higher education, a lot of the people who's, who reject funding students directly at K through 12 will support it when it comes to things like Pell Grants and the GI Bill. And then they'll support it with pre-K programs where you can take the money to a public or pro- private provider of pre-K services. But then they get all up in arms when it comes to the in-between years with K through 12. And that's... Only because the power dynamics differ. The norm with higher ed and pre-K is choice. The norm with K-12 through is an entrenched monopoly that doesn't want you to choose anything else.
0: And I think we all have, uh, you know, I, I look back at my, I, I, I'm a product of public schools. I, um, I, I, I don't, you know, I don't remember the bureaucracy that I see today. Um, and we, we can talk a little bit more now, I've got, I'm, I'm, I'm on the Florida State Board of Education, so I've got a, uh, an insider seat at sort of what I see uh, going on. But what I, what I, what I know we've done as I've looked, you know, is we, we, we spend more and more, quote unquote, per pupil per year, right? But I don't know that that money is actually getting into the classroom and into educating those students. And so one of the, one of the roles that I believe I have is in addition to making sure we're pushing forward with school safety in Florida and not losing ground. After we we made some progress after after the Parkland tragedy, um, making sure we keep pushing forward on that. But I'm also I also sit in in that seat and as as I'm asked to vote on different initiatives, I I I constantly uh, am thinking about what's the best thing for the students? What's the best? That, that, that's my primary objective. And it may, and it may, it, it I know it frustrates uh, some districts. I know it frustrates superintendents and administrators and certainly the, the public school uh, union teachers unions in the state probably don't like me very much at all. In fact, I know they don't, but anyway, <laughs> but that's not my, my job's not to to look after them and protect them. Quite frankly, their job is to look after teachers. And I don't think they're doing in some cases doing a particularly good job of protecting the teachers because they fought against a lot of the school safety reforms that we've asked for. And let's, I have to remind them their teachers were at the end of that rifle, just like my daughter and all the other students. And so I, 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 sometimes it makes me question whether or not they've got the best interests of the teachers at heart. But my, when I contemplate what we need to do as a state. And I think about it, I think about it from the perspective of the parents, what is best for our parents here? And what can we do as a state board of education to make sure that opportunities and choices are made available to parents across the board? So um, I'm fortunate enough to be able to sit in that role. um, And we're, we're doing some good things in Florida, as I think you both know. So I,
1: I got to interject really quickly because there's an intersection between uh, something you just brought up and the the, the topic of, of today's discussion between safety and the unions in Florida earlier this year, at least at least once that I saw is probably more than once the teachers unions uh, filed lawsuits, and they started suing uh, over the reopening of schools in person, you see this happening in other uh, states as well. And so we're talking about safety on this podcast so we have to address this you know um you're a school safety advocate you um are also a supporter of school choice um and so, so it, since you're a school safety advocate advocate that must mean that you're for fully remote learning is that true that we can't have in person because it's not safe right that's what that's what we hear from the, the group such as the teachers union so how do you square that being a school safety advocate and if you don't um, support only remote learning, what's, what's your answer?
0: The answer is simply try to follow the facts in both, in both cases. So what, what would work to protect a school from a, from a, a determined attacker? Uh, I, we, we looked at the science uh, behind the COVID epidemic and, and we did actually close schools for, for uh, a bit last year. And I, I was involved in that decision. Um, at the time, if you remember, 15 days to slow the spread. We I, a lot of folks said that it sounded reasonable to me. There was a lot we didn't know at the time, so we didn't know that that um, schools would not be, uh, you know, uh, places where a lot of transmission would occur. We did not we didn't know at the time, right? A lot of folks, a lot of fear over what was going on with COVID at the time. So we we took a step back. We took a look at what what uh, some countries like in Germany were doing where they were keeping in, in um, classroom uh, um, um, teaching going on. Uh, We looked at what was happening in places like Sweden and other places. And we came up over the, over the, uh, over the summer with the idea of we got to get these kids back in school. We, the kids need to be back in the classroom. It's particularly important for students that have that are at risk in those high risk categories um, more so than the kids that got great internet and you know two tablets and a laptop and all the other things that where they can they, they, and good support systems at home where they can um, um, make remote learning work for them um, there are a lot of students that don't have that uh, that option and so the place it became very clear very quickly that we had to get our schools opened. Our governor led on this uh, from day one. Our commissioner of education led on this from day one. And they instituted an executive order b- basically saying we're opening the schools and asking each of the districts to submit their plans. I think it was by back in August when we had to when we had to review their plans, but they had to include on campus in classroom uh, instruction as an option for parents. Again, I think honoring what I said before, which is parents should be the ones making the decision here. And with all the data that we had to make that decision, it was very clear that schools would not be super spreader environments, that kids were at less risk of, of um, harm from COVID. And that they weren't, and we learned like from Germany, they weren't bringing it home. And that the infections that were happening were actually you know, adults that were in the school that were bringing it from outside the school into the school. It wasn't, it wasn't transmitted at, you know, in, in the school. And so um, we felt very confident that that was the, that that would be not only safe, but it was certainly the right thing to do. And uh, I, you know, I was trying to look at the latest stats uh, before I jumped on here, but, you know, we're close to 2 million students, which almost all of our students are back in the classroom in Florida. It's been a phenomenal success. We've only had a handful of of cases of transmission. We do contact tracing. Um, we gave very clear instructions to, to school districts about how to keep the classroom environment safe based on CDC guidelines and Florida Department of Health guidelines and local health department guidelines. So the classrooms are clean we, we, we keep kids in the same classroom as an example. So they're not moving around from classroom to classroom and in the hallway where they're, you know, there's some social distancing in the classroom. So we do that and it's worked phenomenally well. And those kids that need to be in class or in class and able to learn from in an environment that is best suited for most students. Right.
1: Yeah. And what's interesting to point out is Florida is a state that tends to have not as powerful teachers unions as other states like California and, and New York, for example. And they uh, from the study that I that I did with uh, MIT's Christos Macritus, the places that have stronger teachers unions, a lot less likely to reopen their schools in person. And we're seeing that play out in Chicago today with the Chicago Teachers Union calling for a three percent test positivity rate threshold as a citywide metric for what, whether they're even allowed to reopen the schools for in-person instruction.
0: Which, which, is, which doesn't have anything to do with the students or the schools. No,
1: I mean, look at New York City. They did this with the 3% threshold as well, like a month or two ago. And even de Blasio and Cuomo are saying we're not seeing spread in the schools, right. that you have a very low percent of positivity in the schools. And the latest data out of New York City that, that I've seen is that the positivity rate overall in the communities, like six to nine percent depending on the measure that you use but in the schools it's only point six eight percent right like a, like a tenth or less as the overall community and the same data from you know, similar data from uh, brown university's emily oster also suggesting that schools aren't super spreaders because of this well the, the data that we're seeing that this, the school positivity rate tends to be a lot uh lower than the the
0: overall community positivity That's rate. right I think the other thing too, Corey, just to point out is that what what I've heard, the arguments for keeping the schools closed that are made by administrators, teachers, unions, and politicians typically, uh, and even the media to a certain extent, what they're, they're looking at one side of the equation only. They're, they're looking at the risk of infection, right? Or the risk of spreading COVID-19. What they're not thinking about, is the achievement gap. They're not thinking about the mental health of the students that um, uh, some are in um, some less than ideal environments on a day-to-day basis. But imagine being months and months and months cooped up at home without, you know, uh, a chance to interact with your peers. We, We, you remember as kids, we're very social people. Uh, kids are very social. They need that interaction. That's how they learn and grow. And, and to be isolated and, and relegated to hours and hours of Zoom, I mean, we all get tired of it during, during the day at work. We're constantly on Zoom calls and whatever. Um, kids, kids do not thrive in that environment and we were losing a lot of kids. Um, and so, so the calculation, my point is the calculation needs to be balanced. You need to look at the risk of infection and spreading COVID, but against the cost to society and these students really of not being in the classroom. And when you weigh those, it's clear, the decision is get them back to class, get them back into the classroom, do it safely. It can be done safely, but get them back into the classroom.
1: I'm going to share a quote from a conclusion of the latest study that I've seen on this. It tries to link uh, school reopenings to uh, COVID hospitalizations. I mean, there's there's been a, a lot of other evidence from uh, UNICEF, for example. They looked at data from 191 different countries finding no consistent link between reopening the schools and, and the, the spread of the virus. We've seen Uh, case studies from Sweden showing that 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 the schools are not major contributors of the virus there as well and they've been open the whole time but here's this new study out of uh, I think researchers at the uh, Tulane University and the quote is our our results suggest that school reopenings have not increased COVID-19 hospitalizations especially for the 75% of counties that had the lowest baseline hospitalizations which May may ask people may then ask, well, what about the the places with very high community transmission? They had no conclusive evidence either way. Looking at even the most uh, risky environments uh, for for,
0: yeah, usually usually it's an argument over causation versus correlation. But here, there's no not even correlation. So yeah, I mean, there's no there's no link at all. There's none. It's it's safe to re you know you can reopen schools safely. And I would I would encourage any district or any state that's struggling with the decision, um, look at the Florida department of education website. We've clearly outlined our reopening plan, uh, the principles behind it. And we've got documentation beyond your wildest imaginations about how to do so safely. So use, you know, states are laboratories. Use our, you know, we're, we're a laboratory we've got, you know, we're the third most populated state. We've got over 2 million kids back in class. Go, look at us, use this as an example, use this. Uh, you, you're welcome to call the department of education and ask us, how did we do it? If you've got questions about it, but these other States that are on the fence on this, you gotta get, you gotta get the kids back. I mean, think about a year, think about a student that's, that's reading below grade level. It's a risk in that achievement gap and think about them losing a year. what that means to us, the cost to society of, of, of these students not being educated is incalculable, incalculable, and we're doing a disservice to 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 students and their families by not having schools open.
1: Well, what, what what's, what's interesting to me is a lot of people will say, "Oh, well, you know, it, it's funding. We just need more funding to open the schools." But Florida doesn't spend the most in the nation on schools. It's it's I don't even think it's like one of the top states in. And funny, I think it's below the national average from what I can recall. But then you mm-hmm. have places like California where they're still not reopening the schools in so many places and and, and in New York state uh, that spend a lot more. In DC where I live, they spend over $31,000 per child right. per year and they're still not open. Uh, Chicago public schools, they spend $22,000, $23,000 per child per year, much more than Florida. And they're still kicking and screaming. I mean, they, they opened for some pre-K students and for some special needs students today, and they're 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 thinking about uh,
0: opening it up to K through eight. But the well, youth are fighting it still. And some and some of them found a way to open up and charge money for daycare, which I just thought was I just couldn't believe. You know, we can't open safely, but if you want to drop your kid off and we'll charge you for daycare, well, they they could do in the that same school buildings too in the same unbelievable in the yeah. same That's unbelievable school. that. That's not putting students first. That's well, not putting families first, right? You know what happened there, right? Um, at first I was like, why are they doing
1: this? It doesn't make any sense. And why are they charging families out of pocket? Well, what they did was teachers in large part, it doesn't mean they're bad people. It They responded to the incentives in front of them, which were, they understood that, that, that a lot of them could stay home and continue to be paid the same amount the property tax system mm-hmm. but then a lot of these schools had people from the, the private sector the the ymca and other organizations child care workers going into those school buildings and you got to pay them somehow so families were paying out of pocket for these additional workers so then now you got two people doing the job uh, that previously only took one worker to do and it's all because of the compulsory funding through the property tax system now you essentially have a form of extortion and families you know, there's in some places are still getting a real bad deal. I think, uh, Nashville public schools, for example, most recently tweeted about this and I quote tweeted like, wait, so you're safe enough to reopen for childcare, but not learning when, where, when does that ever make sense? And it doesn't make sense until you think about all of these different power dynamics at play.
0: Yeah. Well, you have the incentives, right. Follow the incentives. I had a, I had a boss one time that, you know, said to me, you know, you, you have trouble figuring out the behavior, follow the money, right? Figure out where the money flows, and then you'll understand the behavior better. Um, I just wanted to say, to your point, it wasn't—it wasn't so much about funding, although I think one, one of the things, one of the smart things our governor and our commissioner of education did was to tie funding to getting schools reopened. So you needed to get. So again, talking about incentives, the incentive then for the districts was to get as many students. You know, back into the classroom as possible, and then that that would trigger funding under the emergency order. But there were CARES Act dollars coming from the federal government, like you know, manna from heaven. I guess, or I don't know what metaphor you want to use. There were there were plenty of dollars to get schools open for states that wanted to do it. Um, Funding wasn't the issue. Well, yeah, yeah, the
1: CARES Act, you know, thirteen point two billion dollars, and then the most recent stimulus, you know, fifty billion dollars for schools, and some places are saying they still need more money to reopen, and and the CARES Act funding, I think most states haven't even spent the initial thirteen point two billion dollars. I think they haven't even spent half of it yet, and that
0: they couldn't figure out how to spend it fast enough. I mean, that was the that was the problem. They didn't know how to how to do that, but yeah, funding was not the issue. Um, the issue was one of motivation and really understanding so g- coming back to what I said earlier, fundamentally these institutions should do some soul searching why do you why do they exist? They exist to serve the students and the families in those communities, and they've forgotten that my my overarching view of the public education system is they forget who they are who they serve and why they do and why they serve them. And that's not to say the teachers don't, because I think in large part teachers, the teachers understand it. they do it for the right reasons. They do it for the students. Um, it's it's the institutions themselves that have grown administratively beyond what's necessary uh, to the point where they, they they exist to serve themselves and 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 to hell with the kids. Right. Oh, and that that's what happens when you have a monopoly.
1: And that's, that's a super important argument for school choice to, uh, to, to, to allow for more competitive pressures to hold particular institutions uh, responsible for their actions. And this doesn't say this isn't to say that every single public school is is doing a bad job. There's a lot of public schools doing a good job. There's a lot of public schools doing a great job with remote learning. There are public schools that have reopened in person without fighting too much uh, Mm -hmm. against that. There are teachers that wanna be in the classroom with their their students. So this isn't a blanket statement against all public schools or, or teachers in general. It's that when you have a strong enough monopoly, you have a really perverse incentive to serve the producer rather than the consumer of the service, so I think this would benefit everybody. It would obviously benefit teachers by giving these school systems uh, incentives to to spend the additional dollars wisely in the classroom on the teachers.
2: Yeah, and
1: I mean this is really this 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 is. Uh, it makes a lot of sense when you look at the response between private sector and the public sector. I mean, the private schools have been open, or they've even been taking it to court to try to reopen. The public schools have been in so many places uh, have been fighting for the opposite. Not so much in Florida, um, but yeah, there's a major difference there, and it's it's one of incentives.
0: It, it, it's incentives, and I, I, I'll go. I'll go one more and say, look. I think it's also leadership, and it, again, it's remembering why we do what we do. Why were the public? Why Why do we have public schools? They're there to serve the students and the communities that they that they exist in. I think our governor and and our commissioner of education understand the role uh, of. Uh, they understand their roles and they understand the roles of the schools that they play in the community. And so leadership is another important factor here. And I think they were willing to go to battle. Uh, We were sued. The department of education was sued by the teachers unions in the state of Florida. When we, when they put out the executive order, we won that lawsuit. We prevailed in that the schools, the schools opened up, but you, you, it it takes a certain um, it takes leadership it takes leadership.
1: And and on that, one of the biggest um, and most optimi- optimistic news in 2020 was that DeSantis signed a bill to expand uh, school choice in the state by, I think, like 25,000 students each year yeah. or even more. And um, school choice advocacy groups were calling that the biggest expansion of, of private school choice initiative ever in U.S. history. So Florida is the place to look. I mean, it's one of the top top or if if not the it's one of the top or the top state when it comes to educational freedom so everybody can can learn a lot uh, from from your state Ryan I
0: hundred percent agree with that and i'm I'm glad to see we're adding more more options I know the demand is outstripping the supply at this point but a lot of those initiatives, go to a comment you made earlier, which is they, they really allow parents to take that funding and 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 find a school that their child fits in. And, and their scholarship programs, we do something really interesting here too, which I think you both understand, but corporations in Florida can assign their tax revenues over to these private scholarship funds, or they're administered by private, uh, private entities. And then they go to fund scholarships for students that are in Uh, you know, in neighborhoods with, with really bad schools. And it's a chance for those kids to get out of those bad public school situations and into a, into what is almost always a private school, right? A private school that will give them an opportunity to get the education they can't get in their neighborhood school. So, I'm proud of what we're doing there. And I think, um, you know, as more and more families realize there's an opportunity there again, the demand is just outstripping the supply. It's just, mm-hmm. there, there are more kids that want to participate than they couldn't. So that's why, um, yeah, that's why I think our governor is expanding that. So.
1: Yeah. you know, Thank you so much, Ryan. Uh, we're, We've passed the hour mark, um, but I just want to thank you again so much for coming out and, and and talking to us today. I'm sure we could go on for another couple of hours, but uh, we'll have to have you back on. Um, I, I want to thank all of the listeners for, for uh, tuning in to another episode of the Educational Freedom Institute podcast.
0: Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you, thank you for listening. You can find EFI online at efinstitute.org on Twitter at EF underscore Institute and on Facebook at Educational Freedom Institute.